here at City Church, and uh, we're really excited again that all of you could join us tonight for Doubt Night. Is anybody excited about that? Yes, I'm really excited. Um, well, I have some quick announcements uh, for the church as a whole, so I'm going to kind of go back and forth between this is for everyone and this is for the youth ministry. Um, first off, for our youth, if you want to be a part of Freak Show, anybody know what Freak Show is yet? Yeah. Um, in the seat back in front of you, like an airplane, there is a blue connect card. You can pull that out under the comment sections, write your name down, obviously, and then write, I want to be a part of Freak Show, and you can drop that in the offering bucket as it passes. All my youth say, you got it? Say, yeah? yeah. All right, cool. Uh, for everybody, this is a whole church Why we have a membership seminar coming up this Saturday at 9 a.m. Uh, if you want to be a part of our church, you want to become a member of this church, uh, we strongly recommend that's, that's how we do it at City Church. That is your next step, to become a member of this church. And uh, child care will be provided for all you parents, so you can drop your kids off, get away from the kids for a little bit, hang out, eat some food, listen about uh, the vision of our church. Uh, next, we have the Back to Church Sunday is coming up on August the 11th, and we are welcoming back our senior pastor, Pastor Eugene, which I'm really excited about. That day, we will also be handing out uh, backpacks. Uh, if you want to be a part of the backpack distribution, if you want to donate to that, just to let you know, $25 uh, supplies, four backpacks filled with supplies per student. So, Four backpacks for $25 filled with supplies. So if you want to be a part of that, um, again, uh, on our offering envelopes in the seat back in front of you, uh, you can just write in special other, um, other giving or offering and then back, back to school backpacks you can write and whatever amount uh, the Lord leads you to. Um, and our last announcement is for our youth yet again. Um, next week, I'm sorry, July 31st, will be our superhero night. So, yes, I'm going to come dressed as Spider-Man, I hope. I'm going to try to find a Spider-Man suit. Um, so don't forget to dress up like a superhero. You can Don't dress like yourself. Don't be like, don't just show up and be like, hey, who are you? And like, I'm myself because I'm a superhero. All right. Somebody right here, they already, they thought that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so please be a part of that. We're going to have a great time. Uh, check out this video. Even though there are 8,000 Assembly of God churches in India, Pastor David Mohan, who Imagine a country where literally thousands of gods are worshipped. 
home to more than 1,600 unreached people groups. The second largest population in the world, where 10 major languages are spoken. India needs Jesus. More unreached people groups exist in India than any country on earth. The Taru, Karuba, Nichar, and Kanjur are just a few. They represent millions of souls, untouched by the gospel, hopeless, lost. Even though there are 8,000 Assembly of God churches in India, Pastor David Mohan, who leads the India Assemblies of God, says, we've got to do more, a lot more. So the National Church is working with Global University to establish the India College of Ministry to train and send 30,000 church planters to every corner of India in the next eight years. Think of it, 30,000 church planters. My friend Anu is one of them. God has called him to reach the people of Kashmir province. Without people like him willing to take the risks and go, India can't be reached. Millions of people worship thousands of false gods because they've never heard of the one true God. The Indian churches have never taken on something this big. It has to be a united effort. Speed the Light is going to provide 10,000 of these digital tablets to be used to train 30,000 church planters in Bible schools. Each will be loaded with all the study materials to train an individual in three years. For $85, you can provide one of these tablets. Speed the Light needs your help. This is our chance to be a part of perhaps the greatest missions project ever started in India. In eight years, there could be thousands of churches being planted in parts of India where you and I can't easily go. But it all starts here with us doing our part. Together, we can change India. Oh, that is awesome. Um, tonight, we have an opportunity to give to Speed the Light and, uh, and give to this India mission. Um, and in front of you, uh, we have these little um, offering card, or I'm sorry, offering envelopes. And if you just want to pull that out, and uh, the, the biggest part about missions to me is the fact that God tells all of us to go and, and create disciples and to go to all the nations, uh, not just the nation that we're in. And this is an excellent opportunity uh, to go to all the world. And this is a way that we can impact tens of thousands of people is by giving to Speed the Light and equipping our pastors over there to do the work that God has called them to do, to, to live out the Great Commission. Um, so if you can, if you want to, uh, we suggest if you're tithing tonight, uh, just write tithe. Make sure that you fill that, that, that portion in, that that is your tithe. Um, and then above that, if you want to give to Speed the Light tonight, just write Speed the Light um, right on the envelope. And uh, if you I want to pull that out, uh, and I'm going to pray over it tonight. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for, for what you're doing in India, God. Lord, we thank you that you are equipping pastors over there to spread the good news of Jesus. Lord, to bring the gospel to all corners of the earth through this ministry, God. Lord, we pray that your hand would be upon Speed the Light. Lord, that your hand would be upon our missionaries. Lord, is all, all the stuff that they go through over there, God. Lord, I pray that your spirit and your presence would be in their life, God. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to give to you, God. Lord, and give to your kingdom to grow uh, what you're doing in, in corners of the nation, God. Lord, we pray that you take this money, that you bless it, that you multiply it, Jesus. We love you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, welcome, everybody. We're excited to have you tonight. You can put your hands together. Come on, it's all right. I am, uh, and everybody that gave to, to Speed of Light, we're just uh, honored. I know my wife and I, we, we made a decision that we want to give, we're going to, every month, we're going to give at least one tablet to start a church. And so uh, it's a great thing to partner with. Aren't you excited that we have students that actually don't care just about themselves, but actually care about the world? Isn't that just amazing? It's awesome. It's amazing what God does in your life. Well, tonight is Doubt Night. My name is Glenn Wolf. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at City Church. And if it's your first time here, second time here, if somebody dragged you in or whatever, we're really glad you're here. And uh, it's going to be a fun night tonight. You can ask questions. You can just sit there. You can do whatever you like. That'll be up to you. Uh, but I want to introduce our speaker and give him as much time as possible. We are delighted and honored to have Dr. Joe Davis with us tonight. Uh, he currently serves as an associate professor of theology in the College of Christian Ministries and Religion at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. Dr. Davis tours throughout the year holding debates at universities and doubt nights for local churches just like this, uh, teaching people that the Christian faith does have answers to some of life's most difficult questions. Uh, his favorite line that he, that he always says is, ask your hardest question since truth is not afraid of a question, but rather relishes it as an opportunity to share the strength of the Christian faith. He and his wife, Dana, live in Lakeland and are blessed with their three children, Catherine, Matthew, and Rachel, and he just blew it up this last Sunday, all three services with us. We just really enjoyed them. So I'm excited to have him back. City Church, would you stand to your feet? Come on, let's welcome to the stage Dr. Joe Davis. Come on, give him a hand. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you all again. And what a joy uh, it was this past Sunday to celebrate with you uh, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter 3.15. And we're going to jump right into things. 1 Peter 3.15. And this is the scripture for those of you who might wonder, why should we even be concerned about apologetics? Why should we try to give an answer for the hope that is within us? Well, the simple truth of the matter is because the scriptures actually teach that. It actually tells us to do so. And of course, the simple truth of the matter is if anything was worth sharing, you would want to. If, and if you actually believe that what you were doing was beneficial, then you would want to share that with other people, just like you do with a, a good movie or something like that. Have you seen this lately? Well, it's even better, of course, because this goes on forever. And so let's read our scripture, 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to, uh, to give, ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come and hear your word. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us the opportunity, Lord, to talk about the mysteries and the joy and the power of the faith. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us tonight. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to talk for just a little bit, and then I'm going to take some questions, because as you heard Pastor Glenn say, I firmly believe the truth is not afraid of a question, but rather relishes it as an opportunity to explore and expand the power of our faith. How did I get into apologetics? Well, the simple truth of the matter is, this may surprise you, I hated school, and I had decided that I wasn't going to go to school. And I went to a prayer meeting, and a little old lady prayed over me, and she said, God is telling me that you're going to get your PhD in apologetics. I told my dad, I said, this lady said I'm going to get my PhD in apologetics. And he said, well, you might as well want to walk on the moon, son. 
Now, in all honesty, it wasn't that he was a bad dad or anything like that. It wasn't that he wasn't trying to encourage me. Simple truth of the matter is I wasn't a good student. My first period class in my senior year, I missed it 61 times. <laughs> Generally, when you miss class 61 times, you just don't do that well. So I had no intention of going to school, and I decided that, well, okay, maybe God wants me to do it. I'll try it. Now, my parents thought I would probably fail out my first semester. And as the Lord would have it, what occurred is I signed up for religion, but the university I went to was a completely secular university, and they hated religion. Now, this actually worked to my advantage because I got to be tested very quickly. And I went in to sign up for class, and I noticed there was no religion offerings. And so I said to the professor, my advisor, I don't see any religion classes. And he said, that's right. And I said, how do you become a religion major without religion classes? And he said, we don't like religion. Take philosophy. And I said, okay, I'll take philosophy. As soon as all my friends heard that I was taking philosophy, they said, you need to drop that. And I said, why? They said, because you're going to lose your faith. I said, why am I going to lose my faith? Well, they ask really hard questions in there, and it makes people lose their faith. I was a little surprised at that because I actually knew that Jesus had come into my heart. He changed me. He had absolutely revealed himself to me, and I was like, I don't really believe there's a hard enough question that, that someone could ask that would shake my faith. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to take that class. And by the way, I like challenges. You'd have to be sort of stupid to say ask your hardest question and not like challenges. And so I thought, yeah, let's get into that. Well, I began to see that, in fact, philosophy did have some very, very interesting and hard questions that they were going to ask. And they did. They asked hard questions. But the more that I began to think about it, the more I began to see something. First, I saw that all of the systems of thought that we examined had flaws, every single one. And I saw that every system of thought seemed to have gaping flaws. And it became apparent to me that the only possibility to make sense of the world was to believe in something higher than yourself. Because if meaning, morality, and all of these things begin with you, in the end it ends with you. In other words, if in fact something's going to generate from human beings, then basically it's, that's about as far as it goes. And I was a pretty selfish person, so I thought, why should I care about other people? And I remember a Marxist coming up to me and saying, are you going to the Marxist meeting? And I said, no. And she said, well, why not? And I said, well, I'm a Christian. I don't really believe in Marxism. And she said to me, well, that's stupid. I thought, really? I said, well, why would you want to be a Marxist? And she said, well, you can help other people. And I said, well, that's what we do in Christianity. And she said, no, but you can really help them. And so I said, well, you know, one thing that is a little confusing is, and I haven't understood this from Marxism, tell me why I should care. In other words, why are human beings important? Now, as a Christian, I can answer that question. It's because you're made in the image and likeness of God. You have value. But if you're not made in the image and likeness of God, why are you any different than a muskrat or a mosquito or a frog? I don't really understand that, and I never have. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say it this way. Unless you have meaning that comes from something that is greater than yourself, then your meaning is confined to yourself. And by the way, aren't you all different anyway? Let me go a step further. Recently, the co-founder of DNA, James Watson, said something very, very racist. He said that white people are smarter than anybody else. Now, I don't believe that. However, what he meant to say by that is that's just good genetics. Now, I'm going to ask you a question and show you why I part of why I'm a Christian. How many of you in here believe that, that all human beings are basically equal or that human beings are 
should be equal. Raise your hand if you believe that human beings should be equal. For example, females, should females be equal to males? <laughs> All right, now I want you to think this through. Now, within our Constitution, it says we hold these things to be self-evident. All human beings, actually men in this case, but let's go further. All human beings are equal. Really? Tell me how you're equal. Are you equal in intelligence? How many of you have a PhD in here? I'm feeling pretty good. How many of you are equal in, do you have a PhD, sir? Okay, hold on. How many of you are equal in athletic ability? You can run fast. How many of you can run fast in here? A couple of you? Okay. All right. How many of you are equal in singing? Everybody's equal in singing, right? That's why we allow anybody to be on the music ministry team. I was a pastor. It was oh so hard to tell people, you can't sing. You, you, you can't do it. I know you want to do it, but you, you can't do it. How many of you are equal in height? We won't talk about weight, will we? Well, the simple truth of the matter is, you're different. And so if we're going to look merely at external things, every single thing that you value and think you're special in, probably there's someone who does it better. You can run fast? Yeah, but you're not in the Olympics, are you? You're smart? Yeah, but how smart? You're tall? You're beautiful? I believe you. But Plato, in his book, The Republic, said this. Let's tell everybody a lie. That everybody are brothers and sisters and God is their father. Except he thought it was a lie. But he said the only way that you can have peace and harmony is if people actually believe that they're brothers and sisters of one another. And in fact, they believe that there's something bigger than themselves that gave them value. Now, as a Christian, I can say there's something bigger that gave me value. God. The reason I'm special is because I'm made in his image and likeness. But you take away the fact that I'm made in the image and likeness of God, then it reduces to my qualities. And the simple truth of the matter is then it's a relative scale, meaning that there's some people worse, some people better. And then it's definitely true that all people are not equal, nor should they be. The only way that you can have equality is if, in fact, you believe there's one characteristic that actually creates equality. Have you ever heard of a guy named Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr.? Ever heard of him? Did you notice that first thing I said in his name? R-E-V. He believed in equality because he was a minister of the gospel. God has created us equal. Now, as I began to progress, I began to realize that some of my teachers actually weren't as well-formed in their thinking as they should have been. And you might say it's a little audacious for someone to question their teachers. 
But it became very apparent to me that many of my teachers did not have the answers. And so I began to quiz them as they had quizzed me. I remember one time I walked up to my ethics professor. His name was Dr. DeBenjabur. He's a very smart man. He had a PhD. And he was a brilliant man. But the more I listened to him teach, the more I began to realize that his theory of ethics left God out. And so one day I walked up to him and I said this, Dr. de Benjabur, I have a question for you. And he was from uh, Belgium and he said, what is it? And I said, it's a very simple question. All I want to know is tell me why I shouldn't kill you. He was a little stunned. It's not everybody, every day that someone walks up and says, tell me why I shouldn't kill you. And he said, oh, it's a game. And I said, we'll see. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'll play along. He said, well, somebody could get you. I said, I've thought of that. I'm not going to do it here. I'm going to wait. I said, not only am I going to wait, here's what I've done. I've done research. My research indicates the majority of criminals do not get And I'm willing to bet that since I'm smarter than most, my odds are really, really good. And so the second thing is, a random killing is the hardest kind of killing to figure out. And so what I'm going to do is it'll be completely random. You'll never know what hits you. <laughs> he said, okay, okay, you're right, you're right. Okay, how about this? Your conscience could bother you. I said, I've thought of that. But remember in class, you taught us that conscience is something created by culture. And so here's our problem with that. Number one, cultures change. Therefore, it comes, from an un it comes from a changing source. And if morality comes from a changing source, by definition, morality would change. My morality has changed. Number two, culture collides with other cultures. Therefore, which culture is right? If you say that morality comes from culture, then in truth, you don't really have a morality because different moralities are going to come from different cultures. And to the degree that they're different, you can't possibly have one that's better than the other. So the third problem we have with culture that we're going to have in your argument, and I'm going to say it this way, the third problem is culture is changed by individuals even though it tries to have conformity. So the simple truth of the matter is even though culture says this, the real heroes of culture are the people who never pay attention to culture, and I'm one of those. He said, yeah, that's true. Then he said, okay, how do you know that I don't have a gun? I said, well, that's a very good argument. Unfortunately, it's my argument. My argument is might makes right, and there's no such thing as morality. The only morality there really is is whoever has the biggest gun. Show me your gun. He said, I don't have one. I said, that, sir, is the end of your argument. And he said, I have one more thing to say to you, young man. And I said, please, tell me, what is it? And I'll never forget this. He looked me right in the eye. And he said, son, you're a very sick person. <laughs> and then he walked away. But what didn't happen? He never answered my question. He never told me why it was wrong. And I'll tell you why he can't theoretically. Now that I've studied it, I understand it. Anything morality that comes from a changing source must necessarily change. There's only one unchanging source. It would be something that is outside of time, outside of finite material, and outside of causation. By the way, there aren't too many things that end up in that category. I'm only thinking of one. His name is God.
I remember I was in a cultural anthropology class, and they taught us this. Morality comes from culture. It's a byproduct of culture. It should only be understood as something with something that's having to do with culture. I raised my hand. The lady's name was Dr. Rosenberg, and I said, Dr. Rosenberg, I said, are you saying there's no such thing as morality? She said, no, you're not listening. Morality comes from culture. It's a byproduct of culture. I raised my hand a second time. I said, so, Dr. Rosenberg, what you're saying is there's no such thing as morality. She said, no, you're not listening. It comes from culture. It's a byproduct of culture. I said, so, Dr. Rosenberg, if you were in Nazi Germany, and in that culture, killing Jews was okay, would you say that culture creates morality? Because if culture creates morality, Dr. Rosenberg, then killing Jews is fine, Dr. Rosenberg. So, Dr. Rosenberg, would you say that it's perfectly okay, Dr. Rosenberg, to kill Jews as long as the culture is all for it? Because if so, I want to know why everybody went to war against Nazi Germany. For one of the few times in my undergraduate days, a professor stopped dead in her tracks. And she said, you're absolutely right. The Holocaust was evil. So I raised my hand one more time. And I said, Dr. Rosenberg, so I think what you're saying is that morality does not come from culture. It comes from a source outside of culture. Otherwise, it's trapped in culture. And there would be no possible way for us ever to tell a culture that what it's doing is wrong. And I think what you've just said is, that culture was wrong. And she said, you're right. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I absolutely believe in Christianity. I believe in it because Jesus has come into my heart and saved me from my sins, and I have no doubt about that. But apart from that, I want to tell you that intellectually, is, uh, Christianity is the most intellectually superior system that I've ever read or know of. Every other system that I can think of, we can make light work of it very, very quickly. Christianity's got a lot going for it. First of all, you've heard people say all religions are basically the same. I've never understood that. I would be an atheist before I believe that. Here's why. To the degree that there's a difference, there's a difference. If there's a difference, they can't possibly be the same. Because if they're the same, there'd be no difference. Doesn't make any sense to me at all. Then people say, well, they're basically the same. In other words, not exactly the same. They're basically the same. Okay, let's be clear about this. We have something called males and females. You ever notice that? Okay. All right. Now, if you said to me, females are basically the same or males are basically the same, there'd be a part of truth in that. There is some general characteristics that females and males have, namely their chromosomal structure, if nothing else. Okay. However, would you go far so far as to say, well, since they're basically the same, it really doesn't matter which one you marry. In other words, just give me a man. I don't care who he is. I'll marry him. I mean, that's the way you think, isn't it? Right? <laughs> or if you're a guy, you say, I don't really care what kind of female they are. If it's a female, I'll marry her. How many of you, that's the way you want to go into marriage? Guys, is that the way you want to go into marriage? Probably not. And for those of you who might raise your hand, I'd like you to see the pastors afterwards for counseling. <laughs> okay. 
Here's our point. The fact that there are some basic similarities doesn't mean there aren't mammoth differences that make a giant difference. For example, don't you think it would make a difference whether there's one God or 330 million? Yeah, I'd sort of say that would be a difference. Particularly when it comes to morality and order, I think it's going to be a big difference. If you have morality come from a single source, then you have a single morality. If you have morality coming from multiple sources, then you have multiple morality. Same would be true with order. If you have order coming from a single source, it seems to make a whole lot better sense than if you have order coming from 30 different gods. Any of you from a large family? Well, let's just put it this way. Anybody from a small family? You have more than two people in your family. Well, you always agree on everything, don't you? That, by the way, would be the reputation of polytheism right there. Of course you don't. And so how is it possible to have order in the universe if you have multiple gods? I have no idea. I don't think it would work. Ladies and gentlemen, here's something that Christianity has going for it. All other religions say, try to be a good person. Work your way up. Christianity says, that is crazy. It's illogical. First of all, how does a finite go up to an infinite? I don't really know how that works. And how does something that's impure reach perfect purity? I don't know how that works. And see, even if you're the best person in the world, when we're talking about God, we're talking about absolute purity. And so I'm not sure how you ever get there. In other words, think of it this way. If you're going to try to reach up to God, isn't that a pretty far jump? Yeah, it's a long jump. Christianity, unlike all other religions, says that a monotheistic God, a God that's not just a God among many, but a monotheistic God comes down to you. Why? Because it's not possible for you to reach him. And one of the differences even between Christianity and Islam is this. I don't know if you're aware of this. Who talks to Muhammad and gives him the Quran? You'd like to say Allah, but it's not. It's an angel. You want to know why? Because Allah is too pure to talk to a human being. So you need an angel. And that is how the Quran is translated. It comes through an angel. Here's the difference between Christianity and Islam and Judaism even. God wants to be with you so much that he becomes like you. Now we can get into that a little bit more as we go on. But this essential difference is the difference between Christianity and all other forms of religion. All other religions say, do the best that you can to reach up to God. Christianity says, that is illogical. It'll never work. You've got one shot. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, ladies and gentlemen, one more thing, and then I'm going to open it up to questions. I don't think it's possible to believe in naturalism or what we call scientific materialism either. And a lot of, there's been a lot of press lately about the people, God delusion of Richard Dawkins and people like this saying how stupid Christianity is and everybody should believe in evolution. First of all, I want you to know that there are Christians who do believe in evolution. I'm not, ask, I'm not advocating and I'm just saying they're not mutually exclusive. For example, this man right here, he wrote a book called The Language of God. His name is Francis Collins. Who is he? He is the chief scientist in charge of decoding the DNA. What does that mean? It means that one of the most brilliant discoveries of our time, the DNA, is being decoded. He 
He now, by the way, is retired, but was in charge of the project of decoding the DNA. Francis Collins is an interesting person. I'm going to tell you why. Because he started out as an atheist. He bought hook, line, and sinker, all the stuff about naturalism and materialism. And then he looked at the DNA. I'm going to tell you, it's sort of interesting when Richard Dawkins talks about evolution and the mechanism of how everything evolved. What he leaves out is your origins. Now, this is significant because it's one thing to pick it up after the ball gets rolling, and it's another thing to explain how the ball rolls. Here's what I mean. Collins points out that the amount of information in your DNA, if we were to read it, it would take us 31 years reading day and night all of the information in your DNA. If we put it on a single piece of paper and stacked it up, it would be higher than the Washington Monument. It's in a four-letter sequence code. And what's interesting is it's a code that a little DNA has within it. And Francis Collins looked at that and said, it just makes more sense to believe that there's a designer when you have something this elaborate on such a small level. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I absolutely believe that Christianity is the way, the truth, and the life, as Jesus said. And I believe it makes perfect sense. And I would like to talk to you for hours upon hours upon hours about all the reasons I believe that. But I think maybe one of the better ways is to allow you to ask the hardest questions that you can think of. Now, why? Because number one, I'm convinced there's an answer. Number two, I believe that Christianity has more answers than any other form of thinking. Not just religion, but thinking. Now, is there one answer that I can't give you? There are some answers in the Bible I may not know because I don't know everything perfectly. I'm trying. But you may ask me, why did this happen to this person as opposed to that one? That I don't know. But if you ask me, why do good things happen to bad people? That I can answer. And that's the difference. I understand why, but why it's applied to you as opposed to another person is something that only God knows. But the question behind it, I think the scripture, scriptures and good reason helps us to understand. So ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, I want you to ask your hardest question. Now I think the way that we've structured our format is that you can text questions, is that correct? And some have already come in. But just to make it fair so you don't think that I've set this all up, I'm going to let you ask questions from the floor. Because I truly believe truth is not afraid of a question. All right, well, let's start off with uh, one from uh, our text, and then we'll go to the floor. Yes, yeah, so we, have, we have three different ways that you can do this. We'll leave, that, we'll leave the text messaging up the whole time. I have my iPad. My iPad is linked up to that phone number. So the moment you text it in, I'm going to get it here, and then we're going to – we already have about uh, – through social media the last two weeks, Dr. Davis, I already got about 15 questions. I'm sure we won't get to all of them. <laughs> okay. I'll just start with the first one as it came in, Okay. And, uh, and then we'll go from there. All right, why do bad things happen like the hurricane in New Jersey? Does God control that? Yeah, great question. Uh, that's probably the one question that comes up more than any other question is about suffering. Why? Because everybody's going to suffer. Now, I hate to tell it this way. Even if you've never suffered in your life, you're going to suffer if you live long enough. 
Now, why? Uh, the scriptures give three reasons, and I'm going to go through the reasons scripturally, and then I'm going to talk logically as to why the scriptures give us good, not only biblical reasons, but logical reasons. First, the scripture says that suffering purifies you. What do we mean by this? It means that, in fact, it reduces you to what you really believe. Now, anybody can worship Jesus in all honesty and be happy when everything's going well. The simple truth of the matter is great pilots are made in rough seas. We find out what you really believe when you're pushed. All of the great figures in the Bible go into the desert. Why? They go to the desert because they're stripped of everything. There's nothing there. All they have is just themselves. The result of that is some people can't take it, and what they find out is that their faith is very weak, or to put it another way, there really isn't any there. They were just fair-weather Christians. The mark of a Christian, somebody who truly believes, is that if, in fact, things go wrong, and they don't go the way, according to my plan, that you absolutely believe that there's another plan apart from your plan. Most of us, as believers, ask God to bless our plans. The simple truth of the matter is that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. So God has a plan for you on this earth. And so part of your plan is to prepare you for glory. The scriptures teach that all of life is a preparation, it says, for the weight of glory. And so all of this is a preparation for what's to come. And Paul talks about that, and he says, do you not even know that you would judge angels? So he says that what's going on is preparing us. Now, we know that even from a physical standpoint. How do you become stronger in the weight room? Well, you lift weights, and there's resistance. And as you begin to lift, what occurs is you find that there's a point where you can lift no further. But what we know is if you continue to lift that weight, then, in fact, your strength will increase and your ability to lift will be more. The scriptures teach that God purposely places us in positions so that we'll be able to be lifting the weight of glory. Now, all of those are merely the prelude for the big answer. And so here we go. The greatest question that people have gives, how shall we say, gives opportunity for the greatest answer. And what is the greatest question? Why do bad things happen to uh, good people? Or why do good things happen to bad people? <laughs> okay? And here's the answer. This is not it. Now, what do I mean? From beginning to end, the scriptures have a message that it's trying to get across to you. Don't be confused. Do not attach permanence to something that's passing. Okay? Now, if you attach permanence to something that's passing, you'll be depressed. Okay? Why? Because it's passing. In other words, live ultimately for something that's ultimate. In other words, the only way to live life rationally and logically is to live ultimately for ultimate things as opposed to ultimately for temporary things. If you live ultimately for temporary things, you're going to be dis disappointed. For example, let's say that the whole of your life is having pizza. At a certain point, you're going to get a bad pizza, and you will be disappointed. The only way around that is to remember that, in fact, that life is not about just here and now. If it is, I'll go out on a limb here, if life is only about the here and now, then the atheists are right. The best way to live is for yourself. It doesn't make any sense to live for other people if, in fact, there isn't some reward system. Now you might say, well, God will take care of me here. Yeah, I, I know that, but it seems like the people who are the most giving are actually the poorest, and the people who give the least are actually the richest. By the way, that's not, not a thought. That's a statistic. Those who give the least are the top 1% of the nation's rich. Those who give the most are the poorest. So why isn't God doing something? Well, he is. And listen to what Jesus says, just so you know where Jesus has come from. Don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth. Store them up in heaven. That's what he says. So basically, if you live your whole life as this is it, you're going to be disappointed. Let me give you a great example. Death. Now, you may not have ever had someone close to you die, but you will if you live long enough. And you know what? It will rip your heart out. 
Am I right? Absolutely. And nothing will shock you more like than death. Because all of a sudden, here this person is right next to you. You're talking to them. By golly, oh, we sure have some fun. And all of a sudden, they're dead. They're gone. You can't do anything. When Jesus comes from the grave, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is now thy sting? What he means by that is the final enemy has been overcome. The The biggest problem of all, death. I love my wife very dearly. I love her absolutely. And I would lay down my life for her. Gladly. But chances are one of us will die before the other. And whoever dies first, the other one will be sad. Or at least I'm hoping she'll be sad. (laughs) The greatest lesson of life, and I hope you hear it, is that there is no permanence to joy that is attached to passing things. The only possibility for lasting joy is to place your joy on something that lasts forever. And short of that, you will be disappointed. So, why do bad things happen to good people? Because God is trying to get a message out. Don't make this your ultimate reality. And the way does he, how, does he do, how does he do it? This is going to surprise you, this phrase. He has made this world perfectly imperfect. Think it through. Dawkins asked in his book, Blind Watchmaker, how come God makes these mistakes? What if it wasn't a mistake to make this world to be imperfect? If it were perfect, you would want to stay here forever. It's not. And one day, I will see the perfect. But it is not here. Very good answer. I'm going to take one from the text message, and then the next one we'll do live. All right. Okay. So somebody at some point, once we get done with the next question, we'll uh, we'll allow somebody to stand up. I'll run out into the audience, and uh, we'll we'll answer your question. Uh, if you have sex before marriage, can you consider yourself pure after accepting Christ? Oh, after accepting Christ, absolutely. It doesn't matter what sin you have done. Uh, all sins are forgiven in Christ. And so I think the question is more sort of, am I still a virgin? A virgin or yeah. not. Yeah. Well, physically you're not a virgin because the definition of a virgin is someone who hasn't had sex. Okay? Spiritually you are. Okay, let's put it this way. In God's eyes you are. Okay? So you're clean and spotless and without sin in God's eyes because of the blood of Jesus. It takes away all sin. Okay? Now, I'm a good example. I wasn't a virgin when I got married. But I believe that Jesus took away my sins. And I believe that he was perfectly able to create a scenario in which my wife would accept me and I would accept her and that we'd have a beautiful, absolutely wonderful marriage as a result. Uh, Two weeks ago, we celebrated 30 years of marriage. It's awesome. Okay, let's take a... a uh, a question from the audience. Yes, sir. Here, I'll, I'll come over to you. I'll hold on to the mic, though. All right, just kind of come in here. All right, here we go. Do you know where God comes from? I understand <laughs> they say words. Yeah. You know, yeah. God, um, word came by God and God yeah. came by word. Okay. We, are, we understand. We slide that over yeah. there. Yeah. I just want to know, do you know where God comes from? Yeah. And how many God is? 
That's two questions. Two questions. I'll give you both of them. Okay, yeah, here we go. Them both together. Great question. Okay, I'll give you Great both question. of them. Uh, this is a very famous question, and uh, it's called uh, What Caused God? And a lot of great intellectual minds have actually asked this question. Immanuel Kant has asked it. Uh, David Hume, uh, recently one of the atheists, Daniel Dennett, has said the same thing. I think Richard Dawkins says it in one of his books. He basically says, well, what caused God? And this is a problem of what we call infinite regress. If everything is caused in the world, which it is, okay, everything is caused. As a matter of fact, you may not know this. This is sort of a wonderful thing. What we know is in that modern science says that there is a point in time where the entire universe began to expand. And the rate of expansion is equal uh, in all directions. Now, that's really interesting because if you understand what I've just said, what that means is you could draw an arrow back to what we call singularity or meaning a beginning point. And so a lot of people have pointed to this and said, ah, there you go. The whole universe was created at a single point, which, by the way, I'd be happy to get into that if you have further questions about it. Now, what you may not know is the absolute uh, dominant theory in physics today and astrophysics and in cosmology is this. Even Richard Hawkins, Hoggings, uh, when he says uh, that he wants to come up with another theory, I want you to hear what he says in his book, Brief History of Time. He says, if we accept the universe as it presents itself, we cannot get away from the question of God because we have a trouble asking how does something come from nothing. All of our theories seem to indicate, not seem to, let me scratch that, all of the theories that we know of that work mathematically, and boy, would I like to talk about this for an hour, point to a single beginning point. Now, when we touch upon this in science with people who don't believe, what they usually say is, well, you're talking about God. And, and as Christians, I go, yes. And they say, well, yeah, but you haven't explained anything because you haven't explained where God came from. Okay? The answer is, you've asked a question in time, and the creator of the box cannot be bound or defined by the box. Okay? Let me give an example. Do we have a box anywhere? Uh, Kim, someone go get me a box. I don't want to be boxed in, but anyway. No, uh, no, a little bigger than that if we got one. Okay, now, now here's the answer to your question. The creator of the box cannot be bound or defined by the box. If I create the box, I can't be trapped by the box. When you ask a question of from, that's a time question. It indicates that God's coming from something or somewhere. Whatever precedes God would rightfully be called God. Therefore, God can't come from anywhere. Okay? Now, using the illustration, think of time and space and the world and the universe as this box. God can step into the box and he can step out of the box. God can both be in the box but not be confined by the box. And that's one of the reasons that we believe in God, or I say you should believe in God quite logically. It's perfectly consistent that God could be omnipresent, be everywhere at once in the box because God's bigger than the box. Anything that you create is subject to you. For example, if I do some artwork, is the artwork subject to me? Yes, the same is true with God. God is not subject to the artwork, nor would it make sense that an artist is subject to an artist's artwork. And with that, we'll do away with the box. Good answer. Thank you. Now, second question is about uh, many gods. It's not really possible for us to have many gods. It would only be possible for us to have one god. Number one, because they would share in divine attributes. And to the degree that they share in divine attributes, it's not actually possible for them to be half omnipresent. That you have to be all or nothing, basically. So the problem with the many-god theory is the problem of order and morality. 
we would right away have to do with order because we have all sorts of people, or gods in this case, going into the equation. And the, and the analogy that I like to use is in my home, we have five drivers and four cars. That was before my children got married, okay? And so what occurred is I was the last person to leave. At the beginning of every day, my wife would say it this way, you take this car, you take this car, you take this car, you take this car. Now, why does she do that? Because individual personalities will do what they will, which meant, to break it down in simple terms, I was without a car. Okay? In other words, if every four people just said, you know, I think I'll take that car, I'll take that car, what that meant was I would be the one left without a car. And since I brought home the paycheck and all of the food and everything was based upon whether I actually went to work, it was sort of important that I actually make it to work. And so what occurred is she would organize. Why? Because there's four different wills, and unless there is an organizational principle for four different wills, four different wills will do four different things. The same is true of polytheism. Unless you have a principle that supersedes all other wills, then you have individual wills doing whatever they want, meaning it's not possible to have order in the universe. Great, great answer and question. All right, I'm going to take one uh, from here. We've got a lot of text messages coming in. So we're just oh, going to okay. be here until about 11 o'clock tonight, and it'll be, uh, be great. Oh, well, thank you very much. That but, is so nice. Can we get that on tape? Everybody's saying, let's be here to 11. Okay. And they cheered. They cheered. They cheered, yeah. How about that? And I haven't even begun to tell my jokes. <laughs> Dr. Davis, yeah, they're clapping for that, for too. Real, real quick, and maybe we could. We got so many. You know, I don't know. We got whatever. Some time left. Um, does God create people with disabilities? Yes. Um, God is responsible for everything, and and why? Because if the evil is more powerful than God, then God can't really do anything. Okay. So all evil has to have a purpose, including bad stuff. Now, why? Again, because this is a how can we put it? An imperfect place. Therefore, every form of creation will be imperfect in some way. Ultimately, God has to take responsibility for the imperfections. Now, if there isn't a he heaven, frankly, I wouldn't worship God, okay? Meaning, I think some people got it a whole lot worse than others. And we don't even have to talk about disabilities, frankly. Let's just talk rich and poor, okay? Bottom line is, people aren't equal in the amount of money they have, in the amount of talent they have, in the amount of uh, physical ability they have, or intellectual ability, okay? That's, that's just true. You're not equal, okay? I'm not equal. None of us are equal in all of these categories. All of us have deficiencies. One of the problems that I have is focusing on a physical disability because the worst disability of all is the spiritual disability. I know many, I used to work with people who were developmentally disabled, what you would sometimes refer to as mentally handicapped, okay? And I'm gonna tell you some of the most beautiful people in the world who I expect to see in heaven were de developmentally disabled and they're wonderful people. Frankly, I'd far rather be around them than some of the rich, uh, arrogant people that I've met in my lifetime uh, flying on planes. <laughs> you, know, you know, you always find the weirdos on planes for whatever reason. Always next to the drunk that when we get in turbulence wants to confess, you know. And like, I just turned to him, you're going to hell, okay? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't. I'm just, I'm just joking. Just joking. But the simple truth of the matter is, it's the the imperfections in this world are factored into the equation. Now, you may say, well, that's really, that's really lousy of God to do that. I agree. If there wasn't anything, uh, there wasn't a better plan, in other words, if there wasn't something behind it all, I would say you're absolutely right. The problem that we get into, if you're going to theorize that there's evil in the universe and God can't control it, then Satan's more powerful than God. And so you're going to have to go one way or the other. You're going to have to either say it all sits at God's doorstep 
and he's got a plan and a purpose, even if I don't understand it. Or Satan's as ultimate as God, and why are we worshiping God if Satan's just as powerful? And by the way, that's not going to work real well with order. The universe looks pretty well ordered, 10 to the 53rd power. That's how much order is in the universe. And so how does all this order give way to the fact that there are imperfections? God has factored every single imperfection into his equation. Now, this is exactly what's going on in Job. Job says, why has all this bad stuff happened to me? I'm basically a good person. Now, listen to God's answer. He says, where were you when I put the stars in place? Now, you may say, well, God's just pulling rank, but it's actually a pretty good answer. What he's saying is everything affects everything, or as we like to say, the butterfly effect. And while you may think that everything doesn't affect everything, what we know is everything does affect everything, even from a physics standpoint. The simple truth of the matter is, while I can't always explain to you why you have this disability or you have this disease or you died when you were 18, what I can tell you is all of that is factored into the equation into a grand overall will, meaning I believe in the weave because I see a weave. And while I don't understand every part, I do believe in the weave. And when it gets to disabilities, I'm just going to be honest with you, I think there will be more disabled people in heaven than people who aren't. Now, that's a heavy statement, but I, here's the good news. All of you are disabled in some way. Good answer. Um, whoever, whoever texts in, where do babies come from, I want to bite you, all right? That's funny. <laughs> well, you see, there's this. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to... <laughs> we're moving on. Hey, uh, can someone go to heaven if they never learn of Jesus, or will they be condemned for not knowing? Let's take one from the floor first. We're going to take okay. one from the floor. Uh, yes. How come there's many different versions of the Bible? You've got the King James, you've got the Good News, you've got the Living Bible. Yeah, it's a great question, a wonderful question. Okay, first of all, the Bible is originally done in Hebrew and Greek. So what you have, whether it's a King James, NIV, Living Translation, whatever it is, it's a translation. Now, let me just say clearly, all translations are inferior. Okay, and you say, well, I have the King James. Okay, well, you have an inferior King James. You say, well, I have the NIV. Okay, you have an inferior NIV. You say, well, I have the RSV. Well, that's inferior too. Okay. Now, it sounds like I'm just saying don't read any of them. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can never reach the original language unless you read the original language. Now, for those of you who speak another language other than English, you already know this. For example, how many people speak Spanish in here? Speak Spanish? Okay. Uh, tell me the word in English for... Yeah. yeah. Tell me the word in English. Did you raise your hand? Oh. Okay. I think. Tell me the word in English. What is simpatico? What is that? What is that? What's the English translation? What is it? Nice. See, it doesn't sound exactly the same to me, does it? Words don't translate perfectly. I'll give you another example. If you're an Eskimo, how do you translate camel? No one's ever seen a camel in, in Alaska. Okay. All translations are an attempt to find the right word to fit the Greek or the Hebrew. Okay? Which means there's a little bit of question as to which one would be the best word. Now, let me calm your fears a little bit. Well, if you want to see how much difference there is, it's sort of simple. Get a King James, an NIV, RSV, and all of them, and just read the same scripture verse. Generally, they pretty much say the same thing. The difference is that King James is a little bit, it's done in a, a 16th century words. And words change meaning. One of the reasons why I actually advocate newer translations is because words change me. I'll give you an example. If I say to you, oh, that is a bad car. Now, what do I mean by that? It's a nice car. 
But no, I use the word bad. So if you're translating the scripture and we're, we're doing the Bible, we're all of a sudden, I've got new inspiration. It's the book of Joe. Okay? The book of Dr. Davis. He drove a bad car. How would you translate that? Well, you see, if you're going to do it absolutely literally, you're going to say, Dr. Davis drove a horrible car. That's not what I meant. And so one of the things that we get into with translations is we try to go back into the original language to figure out what was the writer trying to say. And the result of that is sometimes there's a little bit of an option as to how to translate. That's true for every single language that's translated. Those of you who have ever taken a language, you know that's the case. So the reason we have many translations is it is an English attempt to try to get back to the Greek or the Hebrew. It will always be inferior because it's not Greek and Hebrew. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean don't read it in English. Why? Because the Bible says the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Great answer. Um, okay. Let's, uh, what, what question did I just ask before that? I don't know why I asked you. It's not your problem to figure it out. Um, can someone go to heaven if they, have, if they never learn of Jesus, or will they be condemned for not knowing? Yeah. Now, this is one of the questions that's sort of ultimate. Everybody asks this question, and it's a big question on people's minds. I'm going to say it just as clearly as I can. No one will ever go to hell without knowing that they've rejected God. Okay? No one will. Okay? Now, the question is, do they knowingly reject God? Okay, that's the question. And I'm going to tell you that's God's call, and that's what the Scriptures teach. Okay? Now, give evidence of this. It doesn't mean that people who know of Jesus and reject Jesus will get in heaven. Jesus says the opposite. If you refuse to believe in me in John 3.36, you are condemned already. Now, that's what he says. Okay? Now, his worst judgments are, frankly, for the people who heard his words. Those who know of Jesus and have heard his words and have privy to the information, those people are held responsible for what they know. Bottom line, the scriptures teach it this way. You're held accountable for what you know. The question is, how much do people know? And what Paul says is, for those who are, how shall we say, have never heard, God will judge them. What does that mean? We often mean, think that that means they're all going to hell. But I want to say that I think that what Paul means is, he's going to say that he's going to judge them based upon the knowledge that they have of God in their heart and how they responded. Now, can they get into heaven without Christ? No. Which means this, if it's possible, and I'm not, not sure it is, but if it's possible, that someone could get into heaven who didn't know of Jesus, what would have to happen is 1 Peter 3.19. 1 Peter 3.19 says that Jesus preached to those who had already died. Can it happen again? For those who have died, I sure hope so. Now, why am I saying that Jesus is the only way into heaven? All right? It's called plan A, plan B. If, in fact, there's a plan A and Jesus is the blood of, the blood of Jesus is plan A, and you have a plan B at all, whatever it might be, You've already told me plan A is unnecessary. All right, now that's simple logic. Let me say it again. As soon as you have a plan B, you've already said plan A is unnecessary. Why? Because you have a plan B. Jesus is plan A. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, why is that true? Well, it's these arrows. Jesus' blood is the purification for our sins. Why? Because the debt is owed to God, and God determines that the debt can be paid through the desired sacrifice of Jesus. Now you say, well, how would that do it? It's real simple. If you owe the money, the bank some money, the bank can determine how and when you pay. 
It's up to the bank to decide, not you. So the result is that God has said that there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved, Acts 4.12. And he says it this way. The reason being is because Jesus is the perfect combination of God and humanity. And the result of that is we now have infinite capacity to forgive sins found in a human. Now, why is it important that it be a human being? Because the law must be fulfilled in order for the sacrifice, according to the scriptures, to be acceptable to God. Now, why must it be fulfilled? It is proof that the law is good and righteous and that it came from God. And then it's also proof that human beings can't do it by themselves, that we need somebody a little bit bigger and better. God has the capacity to take all of our sins, since he's infinite, into himself, like a sponge, suck them in and absorb them. And from a technical standpoint, that's what happens to your sins. A lot of times we say it's thrown in the sea of forgetfulness. It's a metaphor. What it really means is that Jesus has sucked the evil and the sin and has taken it into himself. And those stripes that he bore were your sins. That was your punishment. Now, uh, I'd love to talk again about this for a whole hour. But simply put, Jesus, of his own accord, chose to take your sins that you willfully and knowingly done. Because he did that, there's just a question. Do you believe that God accepts what Jesus did for your sake? If you do, that's how you become a Christian. If you don't, then you're the other arrow. You're trying to reach up to God on your own goodness. Good luck. I don't think you'll make it. Okay. Good question and answer. Thank and you, sir. Did a good job. Uh, all right. Um, I have like so many questions. Uh, it's just crazy. Uh, I'm going to hit Let's some take of one the... from. I think we need to go back to the floor now. Okay. Sounds good. I think that guy. We'll go. To, we'll take this guy. Yeah. He had if his can, hand up. If last I can time. make it there. Hey, Mike. What's your name? Michael. Great. Um. Like if I was to speak to like an atheist that believed in like science and stuff, is there like a scientific like way I can explain to the atheists of, of who God is? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Great Again, question. let's do an hour on this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll give you the shortcut and then I'll give you just a little bit of explanation. The shortcut is how I talk to people who are from a scientific background, numerous ways, sort of like I did Sunday. Uh, 10 to the 53rd power, cosmological constant. There's order in the universe. Where does order come from? Doesn't it make sense to believe in an order-er to get order? And if all of this is really chaos, wouldn't chaos be more dominant? Okay? And it sure seems like we got a lot of order. And here's usually what I say, Michael, to a person who's an atheist. And I have said this to a number of them. <laughs> it's sort of fun. I, of course, I like to joke around, have a little fun. I usually say it in this way. You have so much more faith than I do. I mean, you, I, I mean it's incredible. I just admire the amount of faith that you have. Because you see, my faith is all based upon all of this math and, and science, but yours goes directly against that. Now they're going to get offended at that. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. Watch where I go with this. Well, um, let's talk the origin of the universe. And the origin of the universe, in all of our best theories, says this one thing 
there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there's something. How does something come from nothing? Now, that's the question I want to hear answered. How does something come from nothing? Now, what I know, and unfortunately, there's, the only way to do this is to read as much as you can so that when they come up with all the alternate theories, you can say, no, but that's already been defeated. No, that's been defeated. No, that's been defeated. That's been defeated. Because there's a lot of alternate theories that people are trying to come up with. What most atheists don't know, that all the theories in cosmology that have ever been floated up to this point have already been pushed aside. And even some of the big guns, like Stephen Hawkins and Penrose and uh, different uh, Davies, have all admitted that we, we got one thing looking us in the face. And that is that we know that the universe and time and space started in a single moment. Now, let me prove it. Again, we don't have all night, but let me do a little bit. And this is what you want to remember. It used to be thought that the universe was stationary, meaning it was all eternal. Okay? We have discovered that that's wrong, and this is great for Christianity. Who discovered it? Einstein, which is how he made a name for himself. It's called the General Theory of Relativity. And what the general theory of relativity says, and what he called the fudge factor was, he said that in examining the universe, if we look at it as stationary, I have to make the math, I have to, I have to fudge the math. Then it hit Einstein. What if time is relative? What if the universe began? What if all of the theories are wrong? The rest is history, shall we say. What Einstein said, which was later proven, is that the math seems to indicate that the universe had a beginning and all matter, time, and space began in a single instance. Isn't it wonderful that your Bible reads the same way? Listen to it. In the beginning. First, it says something, and I want you to know this, that no one in the entire planet said at this time, this guy Moses comes along and says, hey, all of your theories are wrong. There's a beginning to the universe. Sound familiar? When did it begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there it is. By the way, most of our theories, too, on the expansion of the universe have to do with this massive light explosion. And God said, let there be light. Now, here's where it gets really cool. And this is why, this is why knowledge and, is power. Okay? This is why it's so cool to be able to talk to people. A man by the name of Edwin Hubble theorized that the universe was expanding, and as I've already said, at a constant and equal rate. But we couldn't prove it. It wasn't until later that we began to prove it. We began to prove it in different ways. First, with heat. Let me give an example. If I turn the hot water on in a tub, where is it most hot, at the beginning or at the end of the tub? At the beginning. Correct. And lo and behold, that's exactly how our universe is. There's more heat the further back we go. Second thing, the expansion of the universe. And this is where it gets really cool. And here's a great way to explain it. And I know when I start talking science, every now and then people go, Oh my golly, just stop. Okay. You know, can't, can't that come out with prayer and fasting? No. Okay. <laughs>
this is where it's sort of wonderful to know this information because this stuff is so much on our side. And it's very interesting because all of the atheists who are touting evolution, they never talk about the origin of the universe. And there's a reason why. Because that stuff is very much on our side. Now watch this. You know, I don't know if you know this, but like the Boston, when they had the bomb go off, even if we didn't have the surveillance video, which we did, we could tell exactly where the bomb exploded. Okay, why? And this is where it's cool. Because the bomb explodes and sends debris in equal and opposite directions, not necessarily equal, there's other factors in there, like, you know, are there people absorbing things, unfortunately, okay? But we can draw lines back from the expansion of the blast to its center. And there we can tell where the bomb went off. Now, we do this all the time with bombs. Here's our point. The same is true with the universe. What we know is that the galaxies in our universe are expanding an equal and uniform rate from one single point. Now, I'm going to be real blunt with you. I don't know any astrophysicist or cosmologist that disagrees with that point. That's how strong the point is. I don't know any astrophysicist that disagrees with that point. Even people who do not believe in God, they will, not, they will not deny that. So the question is, if you have a point where everything begins, how did it begin? How do you get something from nothing? And so here's my answer. Finite things can only cause finite things. If you have something that comes before all finite things, it cannot be finite. And I think that's a great answer. Great answer. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's let's follow up with that because um, we I, I think and maybe we can let our nursery know which we already told them we might go like ten minutes over. Uh, hopefully everybody's okay with that, so we can get. There's kind of four major hot topics that I think we want to discuss, and the fact that we just talked about what you're, the subject you did. Let's start with with uh, dinosaurs. Okay. And 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 the idea. And here's the question. Uh, how? Uh, I'm sorry, that's not it. Let me see if I can find it. Anybody know where it is? And once again, it's not your problem. Um, the Bible says very little about the existence of dinosaurs. Um, so how do you explain their existence, coexistence with humans when the majority of scientists state they existed prior to humans? Well, there's two questions there. First of all, the Bible never tries to be a catalog of every living thing. Okay, that's the first point. And if it were, it would probably be about 50 stories high. Okay, and you wouldn't be able to carry it. <laughs> okay, so the Bible never tries to be a catalog of every living thing. Um, secondly, uh, the bigger question, probably the question behind the question is, well, is the earth older than, it, than the scriptures state? Now, this is debated in theology itself and in biblical circles. Why? Why is it debated? It isn't just simply uh, something with science. The answer is numerous things. Number one, is a day a day, and how do we know what a day is to God? Okay? Now, you say, well, the sun comes up and goes down. It doesn't matter because there's different dimensions even in time. Okay? In other words, God could be creating in one dimension and ship it all over in another. Okay? Now, could he do it all six days? Let's be blunt. He could do it in three seconds. Okay? God doesn't need six days. He could do it in three seconds. Now, what is the, most, uh, what, what is the prevailing scientific theories on the age of the universe? The age of the universe is old based upon all of the scientific theories. 
Everything that is, uh, says the opposite would not be considered a scientific theory uh, based upon what would be called peer-related journals. In other words, it would not be accepted in current science. That doesn't mean it's wrong. There's a fact that it's not accepted. There just isn't anyone who accepts it. Why? Because of the geological dating of rocks and the geological dating of the universe. It seems like it is old, which means two things. One, it either seems that way and God has played a trick on us. Okay? Now, that's a possibility. Okay? I'm, I'm going to say, do we know everything about everything? No. Is it possible that the earth could come in aged for God's own purpose? Yes. But what I am going to say is it sure looks old. Okay? And science agrees with that. It says it looks old. Is there any way to coordinate, uh, how shall we, the earth being young with the current scientific information? None whatsoever. None. Okay? So what that means is that either the earth comes in old and there is a six days after sort of at creation, or the six days is a metaphor that God uses similar to a day is like a thousand days to the Lord. The only problem is the sun is there and it comes up and goes down. Again, it's not really a problem for God. He can do whatever he wants. And when I was in Alaska, the sun didn't go down either, really, okay, bluntly, okay? I'm not sure how they do a day, okay? But in Alaska, I'm not sure how they would do it either because the sun's up pretty much all the time in the summertime. So do I think that a day means a day? Here's the answer. I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> now, I'm not trying to be flippant. What I'm trying to say is the scriptures give God lots of latitude in that it says just right from the get-go, a day is like a thousand days. And I'm going to say it this way. There's one day we know for sure is not to be taken literal. Anybody know what day it is? It is the seventh day. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, the seventh day is not to be taken literally. How does he say it? The seventh day is eternity. Now, think this through. When it's the Bible says God rested, remember what Jesus says. Your father neither rests nor slumbers. Not one moment. In him, all things hang together and subsist in him. So the seventh day is meant to be a metaphor for eternity. And that's not my interpretation. That is exactly what the scriptures teach. What about the other six days? To me, the point is, did God create it? How he created it, we can debate. But I want to hold to the big point that God is the creator. Why? How do you get something from nothing? I think that's the big one, and that's where we want to go. And then, and then I, and I want to be clear. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, and so... Us as Christians, when, when somebody says, well, I believe in evolution, I think some believers would go, well, then I guess you can't be a Christian. It wouldn't be true in the sense that there are people who do believe in Jesus and do believe in evolution. What they're trying to say is you don't believe in the scriptures. And let me just say here, let's be a little cautionary. The fact that a lot of people who are scientists believe in evolution doesn't mean that evolution's true. You can't fall for the idea, well, lots of smart people believe it, so therefore it must be true. A lot of smart people believe that the world was flat. Okay. So you want to be a critical thinker. And one of the comments that I often raise uh, about evolution, just pure and simple, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say that there aren't well-meaning people is, there's a lot of things in evolution that not, not explained satisfactorily to my critical thinking. For example, a fossil is not a transition. It's the possibility of a transition. In order to show transition, you must actually show fossils, plural, transitioning. You understand the distinction I'm making? Okay. To say, here's a fossil that shows evolution. No, it doesn't. Here's a fossil that shows what you believe to be evolution. 
In order to prove it, you're going to have to show me hundreds of fossils in transition. Now, by the way, this isn't just me talking. Darwin actually said the same thing. He said, if we don't show hundreds of thousands of fossils in transition, my theory is effectively dead. By the way, just to give you a little bit here, Jay Gould, the late paleontologist at Harvard, who was an evolutionist and was an atheist, didn't believe in God at all, said this, and I want you to hear it, because it isn't just Christians raising questions. Jay Gould, the Harvard paleontologist, said this, I used to believe in the beguiling influence of Darwinian evolution. I do no longer. Because the fossil record shows one thing. Fossils pretty much come in and go out the same way. The fossil record does not indicate transition. Now you may say, well, he's a Christian saying that. No, he's not. He's an atheist. Well, he's not scientific. He was the head paleontologist at Harvard. Does everybody agree with him? No. But I'm just going to point out, there are non-Christian people who are questioning some of the premises. And when it gets down to the DNA, even people who don't believe in God at all admit it's really hard to explain that one. Example, Francis Crick, who is an ardent atheist and believes in evolution again, when asked about the DNA and its complexity, he said this, it clearly could not have evolved in the most liberal estimates of the Earth's time. Well, people start scratching their head going, yeah, I, I, wait a minute, I thought you believed in evolution. He goes, oh, well, yeah, after the DNA. Well, what about the DNA? He said, nah, it's too complex, couldn't have been evolved. So the obvious question is, well, where did it come from? And Francis Crick, this brilliant scientist, said, well, it's clear. It's extraterrestrials. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's clear, isn't it? Well, here's the funny thing about that. By definition, God's an extraterrestrial. Extra means outside the terrestrial. So you haven't disproved God. You've actually helped. Good answer. Um, if, if the Bible is... Uh, let, me, uh, let me ask this. Why does, why does the Bible seem like it oppresses women? Oh, Okay. All right. I thought well, that was a great question, by the way. Yeah. I certainly hope not. Uh, I certainly hope not. But I can understand why it would certainly seem to oppress women. Okay? First of all, I think that the whole message of the gospel is freedom. Jesus Christ came to set the captive free. I don't believe that the gospel or the Bible wants to subjugate or imprison or, or hurt women. Why? You're made in the image and likeness of God. Your value comes from your creation. And so I don't think that it's the desire of the scriptures or Jesus or God to do so. Now, how does all of this work as it relates to the scripture? By the same token, if you ask me, do I believe that God sets up authority structures in the home and in the government and in the church? Yes, I think that he does. Do I think that that means that you're any less of a person? Nope. I don't. For example, I'm under authority to my dean and to the president of the university. I guarantee you, if you went around Southeastern University and asked the people there, do I feel like a second class, does Dr. Davis feel like a second class citizen? The answer would be unanimously, no, he doesn't. Even though he is in submission to people above him. I don't believe that the two create, how shall we say, a lack of value. Rather, I think that God has set up structure 
and that the value of the Imagio Dei must be appreciated and accentuated in our differences. Are there differences between males and females? Yeah. Okay? Absolutely. Does that mean that females are only less valuable than males? Absolutely not. But if you're going to tell me females and males are absolutely the same, well, that's not true. Okay? All you're going to need to do is look at the muscular structure. And even your brains, by the way, think differently. Here's something to chew on, which is sort of fun. Men use predominantly one side of their brain, and ladies, you can interpret this either way you want to. I'm just going to throw it out there. But women use their whole brain. It's true. There's, a, there's really true. Yeah, go ahead. You can give your... Yeah. And so the next time you run into a problem with that male friend or husband, you just look at him and says, use the other part of your brain. That makes sense why my wife picked me, because she used her whole brain. Oh. <laughs> Got it. Oh. All right. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about homosexuality. Homosexuality, okay. Uh, which is probably the question that would come from the floor at this point. It's okay. very bent, pent up. Um, is homosexuality a sin? Yeah. The answer is the scriptures from beginning and say it is. Okay. How do we know that? Uh, first of all, you could say Sodom and Gomorrah, but a lot of people want to argue about Sodom and Gomorrah. Read Jude 7. Jude 7 says it very clearly, just as clear as could be. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed because of sexual perversion. Now, the question behind the question is, why would God destroy people who can't change their sexual orientation? I mean, clearly they're born that way. Well, um, let's do science. And here I'm going to say, if ever there was junk science, here we go. Now, I'm going to blow your mind with some science. And I want you to remember the science. Isn't it fun for a Christian to come in and talk about science? Okay, here we go. We have proved definitively there's no such thing as a gay gene. Did you know that? Okay, it's called the Bailey and Pollard study for those of you who want to look it up. How do we know definitively that there's no such thing as a gay gene? Well, I'm going to tell you why. The best study that we can do in genetics is on identical twins. Anybody want to know why that's such a great study? Anybody know? All right, let me ask it this way. What's the difference genetically in the DNA between identical twins? They are 100% identical genetically. All right, follow me here. If something is deterministic, there's no choice involved. And I'm going to say it this way. If there's no choice involved, it can't be an ethical issue. You can't blame a person for something that they can't control. The assumption is that homosexuality is genetically something that people are born with. The study has been done that has disproved that without question. Why? We studied identical twins, and we specifically asked for people who were gay to volunteer for the study. So what we did is we asked for gay identical twins, meaning that at least one of them was gay. Then we studied the other one to see if they were gay. Now, here's the point. And those of you who aren't good at math, you're going to miss this. If we found that 98% of the people that had twin brothers or sisters were gay, would that be deterministic? No, it would not. Why? Because 2% are not. If you have 1%, that shows up as not being gay, that means that there's no such thing as a gene that makes you gay. Now, I'm going to teach you a term here, propensity. I'm not saying that people don't have propensities. Everybody has propensities. For example, I don't know if you know this, but we know that among murderers, they have low serotonin and high testosterone generally. Now, here's the problem. Do all people with high testosterone and low serotonin kill people? No, they don't. But do we know that it is a component to behavior? Yes. 
For example, arson, again, is low serotonin. We know that arsonists have low serotonin. So if someone comes and burns your house down, would you think in your mind, oh, they had low serotonin, that's why they did that. <laughs> but if you ask me, do most arsonists have low serotonin? Yes. All right, now here's what, here's what may shock you. Every criminal behavior that you can think of, we can find a biological component to. Well, why don't we just let everybody out of the jail? Because there's a difference between component and determinism. The fact that you have a propensity in a certain direction doesn't mean you must do this or that. Okay? Now, let's talk homosexuality. The study, the Pollard and Bailey study said this. We know that if we study identical twins with 100% the same DNA, we find propensity but not determinism. What does that mean? Instead of finding 98%, 95%, 75%, what we found is about half the time, if you have a gay brother or sister, you're an identical twin, you also are gay. Now, here's what that shows. It shows that there is a propensity towards homosexuality, but not a deterministic quality. In other words, you have more of a chance of being gay if you have a gay brother or sister, but it doesn't make you gay. What does this mean? You ever heard of gaydar? People recognizing and pick up that people are gay. Oh, well, he's gay, no question. She's gay, no question. Okay? Well, there's certain truth to that. And while no one would say that's 100% accurate, generally we've done, studies, we've done studies on gaydar, and we found that people are generally right. What are they picking up? They're picking up biological components and propensities similar to every other behavior that we can think of. In other words, it is true that there are components to behavior that make people more prone to being gay. You understand where, see where I say, what I'm saying? Is it true that some people are more prone to be gay? Yes. Is it true that some people are more prone to be murderers? Yes. Is it true that some people are more prone to be arsonists? Yes. Is it true that some people are more prone to be pedophiles? Yes. As a matter of fact, if you want to talk deterministic behavior, there's more biological evidence for rape than there is homosexuality. So be careful what you're going to do. Because if you're going to say biological propensity grants you the freedom to do whatever you want, then we're going to have to tell rapists that it's okay to rape. Because they have high levels of testosterone. We also know that people who have what we call Kleinsfelder syndrome, which is chromosomal deficiency, also have higher levels of molestation. That is true too. So would you say molestation is okay? I'm thinking you probably wouldn't. Why? Because Propensity does not equal determinism. What does it mean so far as homosexuality is concerned? What it means is we know that there are choices involved. The problem is we also know that there's propensity. Now, one more study on this. You may have heard that homosexuals' brains are different. This is a perfect example of, how should I say, media sensationalism and a bad study. A study was done by the Simon LeBay Institute, excuse me, by the Salk Institute by Simon LeBay. They found that homosexual males had different brain structuration in the hypothalamus region than other people. Their brains were larger, okay, in that one area. They theorized that having a, higher, a larger hypothalamus equaled homosexuality. <laughs> the study was done, I'm laughing because it's so bad. The study was done on 41 people. My first question is, how did this make it to the front page? And my answer was, either people are stupid, okay, 
and they don't actually understand that 41 people does not equal a legitimate study, unless, frankly, you don't really have any more than very few people. And the second thing is, wouldn't you want to wait for a larger study to confirm a seeming preliminarily wild finding? Why put it on the front page? My answer is the media wanted to put it on the front page. Now, here's the interesting part. That study has been thoroughly repudiated, even though it still shows up in textbooks. Here's how it got repudiated. It is true that all the males studied had a, higher, a larger hypothalamus region in their brain. But all of the males died of AIDS. Every one of them studied was a cadaver that had died of AIDS. Here's the problem. AIDS increases the hypothalamus region. And so the simpler solution was just to say the disease creates an enlarged brain. By the way, this paper that I read it in, the Baltimore Sun, printed a retraction and repudiation. The only problem is it was on page four. It wasn't on the front page. And to this day, people still believe that homosexuals have different brain structuration, even though the study has been thoroughly repudiated. Now, where do we go from here? I have no doubt that some people struggle with homosexuality more than others. I have no doubt that some people struggle with pedophilia more than others. I have no doubt that some people study with all, struggle with all sorts of things. The fact that you struggle with it doesn't mean it's okay. If we're going to create morality, then good luck on that, because morality that begins with me must logically and necessarily end with me. Where do I get my, reality, my, my morality from? My morality comes from God. Why? Because the only possibility for having unchanging morality is to get it from an unchanging source. You don't want to get it from culture. We've already talked about that. So I'm going to get it from God. What does God say? From beginning to end, he says no. Now, some people say, well, Jesus never talked about it. That's correct. And Jesus never talked about putting cats in microwaves. <laughs> so therefore, it's okay to put cats in microwaves, right? And he actually never talked about smacking someone on the right ear. So you may look to the person next to you and just, no, okay, don't, 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 don't do that. Yeah, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Glenn? No, no, I'm just, okay. This is in logic called an argument from ignorance. You can never argue from what's not there. Why? Because you could come up with hundreds of things that aren't there. So to say Jesus never talked about it is a horrible argument. And furthermore, since Jesus believed in the Old Testament to be inspired, isn't it more likely that he accepted what it said? I think so. I think so. So the simple truth of the matter is all of the biological evidence that we've been able to show does not show determinism. It shows propensity. The problem is people, how can I say this nicely? People are not critically thinking enough to be able to understand the difference between propensity and determinism. But tonight, you are. Okay. Very good. And one... One, uh, one follow-up with that, and then I'll give you the last few minutes just to maybe a th three-minute close of whatever you'd like to share. Okay. Um, so, okay, so you, ju you just refuted that homosexuality could be, that people could be born gay, but people still, a guy still likes a guy. A girl still likes a female. Yeah. How does the church handle that? Um, when question. you look a person in the eye, <clears throat> we can't, yeah. we should never come to them and say, you're not. What you're feeling right now is not true 
yeah. or whatever, and some people might do that. How, how yeah. would we practically yeah, yeah. It's a great story. in our culture? Great question. Uh, first of all, with compassion. Remember the very last part of our, our scripture that I read, 1 Peter 3.15. Have an answer ready for those who ask for the hope that is within you. And then it says, but give it with gentleness and respect. Okay? Now, you might say, well, Dr. Davis, you sort of crucified your teachers. Yes, that's true. Okay. But the reason for that is they were influencing people and something had to be done quickly. What should occur in most instances outside of public ones, okay, and if a public speaker was telling you homosexuality is genetically proven, I would raise my hand and I would say, have you read the Pollard study? Okay? I wouldn't wait. Now, how should we deal with people who are struggling with any sin? With love and compassion because we are sinners. You are saved by the grace of God. And that is how you're getting into heaven. And so having been saved by grace, I have compassion for those who are struggling, particularly with those who, who are having all, how shall I say, gender identification issues or just issues of, of sexuality. One of the things that I know that you may not know from having studied this, and this is where compassion comes in. Homosexual males, the average age of sexual intercourse with another male, is 12.7. Now I want you to understand the math. What 12.7 means is that half of the people had sex before 12.7. I understand that there's a lot of people who, who feel very strongly about their attraction. And I understand it and I want to love them and care for them. I can't give up the truth of what Jesus says, because if morality is based upon individual opinions, then my individual opinion is that you should be my slave. Okay? I believe that morality must be based on a source higher than ourselves. So when it comes to dealing with people who are struggling or questioning, or just angry, we love them. We speak the truth in love. I'll give you this example. A lady came to me a while ago, and she was a lesbian, and she was into S&M. Her lover had emptied her bank account and went to the Caribbean. She now was no longer able to pay her mortgage, and she was being bankrupted out of her home. She came to me and told me what was going on. I asked her how it is that she could let somebody abuse her economically in such a power, terrible way. And she said these words to me that helped me to understand. She said, Dr. Davis, in my entire life, no one has ever told me, I love you. She's the only one who's ever said it. And even though she's hurt me tremendously, no one else has ever bothered to even say it. When I heard that, my heart broke. And I grabbed her hands and I said to her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I love you. And you will count on my love anytime you need me. I would do the best that I can to be there. She broke down crying and she decided to take the other girl's name off her bank account because for the second time in her life, she'd heard somebody say, I love you. What we want to do 
is to speak the truth in true love, to really love people and get them to believe that there is hope. And then one, I want to I want to hit this because this is the hottest topic in I feel like in culture in general. Um, so okay, so somebody comes to Christ, they have homosexual tendencies, they are homosexual still, if you want to call it that. Uh, can you be gay and go to heaven? Can you be homosexual uh, in action, if you want to call it that, yeah. and be a believer through God's grace, etc.? That would be the thing that yeah. people would ask. The answer is the scriptures ask us to turn from sin. And it isn't just homosexuality, it's every sin. So let's be really clear. The scriptures teach it this way. You cannot get into heaven if you are a gossip and you have no desire to stop being a gossip. Now you say, wait a minute, that sounds like works. I'm quoting a scripture, absolutely word for word. It says, beloved, be not deceived. These people shall not enter. Now, more proof of it. 1 John 3, 6 through 8. All I got to say is just read that. And again, here's where the Greek helps us out. It's an ongoing sense. It's not something you do at once. And 1 John 3, 6 through 8 says, Beloved, be not deceived. To continue in sin, and I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm going to say it this way. To continue in sin and not have a desire to stop, no matter what the sin is, you do not belong to Christ. Now, this is not my theology. What I'm saying is I'm quoting word for word what the Scripture says. If you think I've made this up, please look it up. Beloved, be not deceived. If you continue, and I'm going to say without any desire to stop, because I think some people struggle. But there's a big difference between falling in the pool and jumping in 77 times. Okay? Yeah. Okay? People who fall are rescued. People who jump in 77 times want to be in the pool. All I'm saying is God's not stupid. That's really all I'm saying. He's not dumb. He sort of gets it. And ultimately, God will let you have what you want. If you want him more than anything else, you'll get him. Very good. Well, the final two minutes is, is yours, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll close, close together. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I appreciate you spending time with us tonight and, and coming and asking hard questions. I wish that we could stay here for, uh, feel like Peter and saying, let's build tabernacles and, 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 and just talk. I believe that Jesus Christ is the most rational way to live. What I mean by that is I see no way out of trying to please God You're trying to become a better person. You have one shot. That God loved you so much that he came to where you are. And he wants to be with you for eternity. The reason that you have questions is because deep in your heart, God has placed a seed called truth. And the only answer that makes sense, the only answer that makes any rational sense, is to believe that you were created for a purpose, and that all of life leads to being with him forever. If you've never made that decision to accept Christ in your heart, tonight, I'd like to ask you to do so. I want to tell you it's the greatest decision I've ever made. 
And it's the most rational one. If there is a God, then the smartest thing in the world would be to be on his side. Ladies and gentlemen, would you pray with me right now? I think there's a calling on somebody's life. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we've talked a lot about a lot of very tough things tonight, very interesting things. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would move your Holy Spirit upon the hearts and minds of your people. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you and has never felt the forgiveness of sins which you offer, pray that right now they would ask you into their heart. If you prayed that prayer or you would like to know more about Jesus, would you just simply raise your hand? If you've walked away from Jesus and you've begun to live life on your own and you've decided that you'll be your own God and you'll call the shots, I want to pray for you right now that tonight you would recommit your life to him and that you would say these words from this point forward, I'll follow you forever. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I don't want you I don't want to call you out if that's you. I want you to just pray that. And for the third person who is wandering and wondering. I pray that you'd keep seeking. Because I promise you If you see, you'll find. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you all so much. I appreciate being with you. Come on, would you give your appreciation to him? Did a great job tonight. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Very, very good. God bless you guys. Have a great night. Enjoy your enjoy the rest of your summer. We'll see you back here. Youth ministry wide open. We'll be right back here next Wednesday night. We'll see you Sunday morning, 8.30, 10 o'clock, 11.45. Have a great night.